Our teaching series this summer is about stories. I think everyone loves stories, whether we're children or grown adults. Um, in, in Northern Ireland, um, we would call them yarns, or they talk about having some good crack. I've learned later that that's not a good expression over here. So, um, And the best storytellers, I think, are Irish grandfathers. So my grandfather always had a yarn for us, and whether we were walking by the shore or sitting by his chair in the living room, he, he'd always spin a yarn. Um, and he, he had a colorful way of talking, and he, he had this one little rhyme that is still present with me today. It's just a silly little thing, but it's, it's kind of one of the silly little rhymes that he used to spill off for his grandkids, and it, it became very endearing now, of course, long after he's gone. So it went like this. Says she to me, was yon you? Says I, me? Says she, I, says I, no. Now you have to dismantle that whole thing to figure it out, but it's it's just kind of an Irishness. And um, grandparents are great storytellers, whether they're reading us books, uh, spinning yarns, however it goes. So we're going to spend the whole summer really uh, looking at stories. And we're looking at stories from a very particular viewpoint. And that is that one characteristic of many stories, if not all good stories, is the the component of longing. That sewn into the story is something you long for. There's um, There's something you wish could happen or would happen or you hope could happen or would happen. Um, and, and so what we're going to do is we're going to look at the stories of the Bible, um, not the, the actual stories of the Bible, but the accounts of the Bible. And we're going to look also at the sort of the narratives of our own human experience. And we're going to talk about the way that longing features into those stories. The, the hallmark stories of the Bible, the, 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 the big rock stories of the Bible. So today we're going to talk about Eden, the Garden of Eden, um, and, and see how this figures in there. But each time we do, we'll look for this notion of longing. And in particular, we're, we're going to direct that longing forward. We're going to observe that good stories not only embody a, a stream of longing, but that longing is often forward. We're longing forward. And so, so this will all come together for us as we look together at what is the future for those who are human beings trying to figure their way out living through this life and particularly living through the, these really challenging times. So we began last week by sort of introducing this notion that um, stories evoke something in us. And I, I quoted um, Samwise Gamgee in The Return of the King with this, I think it's a really lovely quote. Um, he, he says when he sees Gandalf, he says, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? So we'll break that out, and what, what I'd like to play with in the stories this summer is the notion that everything that is good in a story is going to come true, very, very true, you know, bigger than life true. And as well as that, everything sad is going to become 
untrue. So we'll kind of look at the stories and wonder what it is in the stories that that um, evokes this great hope that it'll become true, even truer than the story. And then what is the sadness of the story that we long to see come untrue, um, story by story. So today we're going to look at the probably the first great story of the Bible, which is in the first few chapters of Genesis, and it is a story of creation, but then ushering into the account about the Garden of Eden. And so we're going to think about the Eden stories, and we're going to ask the same sorts of questions as I just mentioned about the Eden stories. So if you can um, think back to what Eden was all about and think about how you have thought about Eden and try to, to find the feelings that have been evoked by the notion of, of a Garden of Eden, of Eden. Even the idea of Eden revisited or Eden lost, Eden discovered again, um, so that we, we find ourselves thinking, yeah, that the story of Eden is indeed a story that has some longing in it. It has some happy longing and some sad longing. And we're going to see how we think the Bible explains all of that. So three, four questions I would like to, to deal with today about Eden. Uh, the first one is this. What Eden stories do I long to come true? What, what are the stories or the chapters of the Eden story that when I read them and I kind of think of myself and ourselves as a human family, I, I, I think, boy, I, I, I wish that were true. I really hope that becomes true. The second question is, what Eden sadnesses do I long to come untrue? What are some parts of the story that I wish would get fixed um, if, if we're going to carry on with that narrative? Thirdly, the question, how is Eden a forward longing? How, how, how can we see that motion in the Eden stories? And then lastly, when will Eden come true and untrue? So hanging our thoughts on those particular questions, um, let me just take a little while with us today to enjoy the story of Eden as we remember it and sort of dig into it for the things that uh, are, those that we hope are true and will be true, those things that were sad are part of it and we hope they'll be untrue as time goes on. So what Eden stories do I long to come true? Uh, the story of Eden as, as a grand story is a story that I think I can capitalize in three eyes, um, and, and I'll explain what they are. And the three eyes of Eden, I believe, are things that speak to our human heart, our humanness, and they're intended to do that as man Adam and Eve are characterized as having been created by God and placed in this idyllic garden. And in the cool of the day, we're told that even God himself comes and he walks with them. And here's this paradise of um, a perfect climate. It's a, a, a perfect garden, a gorgeous garden that it yields fruit and flowers. Um, there's 
it's, it's just everything that a paradise should have. Um, and the three eyes that I see that I long for, um, I long to be true by my, sort of by my created state. The first one is innocence. Um, God t- tells us the story of Adam and Eve and the, as scholars kind of mark out the ages of humanity or the stages of, of the human development, very often the Edenic um, period of time is called the period of innocence. And if we were to wonder, well, what, what characterized Eden the word innocence, I'm sure, would come readily to mind. It was a time of absolute, sure innocence. And there's something about that. The, the more complicated and uninnocent our lives and our world become, the more the notion of innocence um, is a clarion call to us that says, that's the way we were created. That was how it was supposed to be. That was what was part of it being a paradise. And so what do we, what do we mean by innocence? If I were to give you a definition for innocence, I think probably to say it is this. It's an uncomplicated straightforwardness. An uncomplicated straightforwardness. To be innocent is to be free of complication and is to be free of any kind of duplicity or hiddenness or, or shadowing. To be innocent is to be what I appear to be, to be seen to be who I truly am from the inside out. There is no hiding, there's no pretending, there's, there's no fear, there is just this delicious sense of being able to be me, to be absolutely freely me, and for you to be absolutely and freely you. Uh, When we're given the the account of Adam and Eve and the fact that God brings Eve to Adam, one of the things that describes how they were in their experience one of the other is that they were unashamed and naked. That's innocence. There's a songwriter back, I think, in the 60s and 70s called Don Francisco, and he has this lovely um, song. It's a ballad, I I think you would call it. The first verse of that ballad says this, and you you almost would need to hear kind of the lilting, um, almost like a medieval sort of tune that's in behind it. And the, the words very simply go like this. Unashamed and naked in a garden that has never seen the rain, rulers of a kingdom full of joy, never marred by any pain. The morning all around them seems to celebrate the life they've just begun. And in the majesty of innocence, the king and queen come walking in the sun. Isn't that a delightful way to just imagine? Um, So it's a perfect temperature day. It's always perfect. Um, everything is in full bloom. Uh, everything is where it ought to be. Everything is, is delightful to see, to smell, to taste, to feel. And 
Adam and Eve are placed into this idyllic situation, and it's the making of a great story. So the first eye is the eye of innocence. And I think there is something in all of us that just longs for that, for life to be an innocent reality again. The second eye that um, I bring to the story from my reading is the eye of imagination. So not only was it a place of absolute innocence, but it was also a place of imagination. Um, The word play is not a verb that we often associate with God. And yet I think in many, many, much of our understanding about God is to say, he actually is a God of play. He's a God of creative imagination. He's a God of um, in enjoyment, a, a God of uh, wonder. And his creation is, is kind of a, a trophy of that. He, you, you imagine God making the various aspects of creation and almost having a delight in his eye and heart as he calls things into existence. And Eden is, is sort of the, the result of the imagination of God. Um, we're, we're given the six days of creation and told about the, the things that each day is to represent that God brought into, into being. It, he, he also then brought about humanity as sort of the end of his days of creation. And when he brought humanity into the garden, he, he essentially handed over to humankind the opportunity for imagination and play and creativity. Even in the naming of the animals, and again, you have to see the play of God where he brings the animals to see what they will be called by the humans. So imagine God brings in a giraffe and he says, I wonder what they will call this, right? Or God brings in a serpent and it's a gorgeous being at the moment, but God knows there's a sort of a subtext there. But, but in all of it, is there, there's this incredible, imaginative, creative garden. Um, first of all, of, of God's imagining into existence all that was in his mind. And remember that it, it all came from nothing. It, it came as a result of the word of the Lord. And, and now God commits to humankind the opportunity to be like him. Um, and, and in fact, he, he tells them that they are to be stewards of the animals. They are to rule over the animals. They are to make sure that this gorgeous menagerie, this incredible greenhouse, this wonderful scape of mountains and, and all that God presents before them, he, he says to, to the man and the woman, it is your responsibility to take care of all of this. There is a notion that the Garden of Eden um, could be discovered today in, in um, the particular part of the the fertile plain between the um, the great rivers and um, people sort of wonder, well, what happened to the Garden of Eden and and was the Garden of Eden kind of the the seedbed of all of the creative wonder of the world in which we live. 
So they were innocent, and there's something beautiful about innocence. They were, they were given the opportunity for great imagination. Um, and the third eye really interprets the first two. It's the word image. It's a more conceptual word than the words innocence and imagination. But at, at the beginning of the story of God and us, we're told that God was talking to himself and he said, let us make man in our image. And so it continues with a little poem and it says, so God created man in his own image. In his image he created them. Male and female he created them. Um, the image of God is best articulated or best demonstrated in, in the story of our um, anthropology by the, the humankind male and female that he created. He, 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 whatever else he intended to be part and parcel of the creation, the main thing was that he said it's to be in my image. And so there is in the Garden of Eden the, the playing out of this I, this reality in the garden that, that the, the human beings who were there, who they are there in God's image. Theologians have done a lot of work with the notion that Eden is Earth's first temple. And in, in any temple, uh, there's an image. And the point of that image is that when those who would like to be worshipers in those temples, be they pagan or whatever they might be, there's always an image. And the image is to answer the question, whose temple is this? Um, and, and when you see the image, you, you're supposed to get an inkling into, oh, it's this kind of a being's temple. And Adam and Eve were the image that God was placing into his temple, his first temple in the Garden of Eden. And as, as Adam and Eve played into the drama of God's creation, God intended for them to be the best description of what he is like. They were, in the way the whole notion of temple uh, developed in the Bible, they were also both kings and priests, kings and queens and priests and priestesses. Um, as, as kings, in the function of image, they were in the image of God to rule on his behalf, to, to reign on his behalf. As priests, they were in his place to call worship on his behalf. So the king and and queen part of it is is the way that the image of God comes as his disclosure to anyone who would come to worship him. him. Um, the, the priest part is what the image does in calling people to come through the image to worship the one that they are there to represent. So it's a, it's a complicated theology that get, gets developed on, on down through time. But there's this beautiful image, and it, it becomes a very, very strong um, message th through all of the Bible, that the point of our having been created is that we are the image of God.
we are to be, we were to be, the best answer to the question, what does the God who inhabits this temple look like? What is that God like? And the answer is supposed to be um, male and female created in his image. So what Eden stories do I long to come true? I think in many ways I long for the innocence, for the simplicity of that uncomplicated straightforwardness. Do you sometimes get tired of having to figure out what all is going on and what you know, relational issues come to bear, what histories come to bear, what confusions come to bear, what misunderstandings come to bear, and, and you just wish it, it could just be as simple as what it is is what it is. The second thing, this imagination part of it is, um, th- there's just so much for us to understand that, that God was God of imagination and he was inviting his created image to join him in his imagination, in, in his creative play, in, in his wondering, in his amazing. And, and um, as, as we travel through time, imagination is a, is a tremendous gift. And so, I mean, for, for some reason, when we get to a certain age, we're not allowed to imagine as much anymore. But remember the days when we were kids and we could imagine whatever we wanted. We could imagine we were pirates in the high seas. We could imagine that we were flying through the air. We could imagine whatever we wanted. If you were to go onto Main Street and do the sorts of things now that we did when we were kids, they'd actually have you in for some some sessions to ask you why you were pretending to be an airplane down Main Street. And if you were five years old, you could say, because I was an airplane. It was my imagination. Imagination is a lovely gift from God. And uh, much of the arts is around imagination. It's, it's just exploring all of the facets. And so I, I, I long for that part of, of Eden. I, sometimes we have the notion of, of the afterlife and of the kingdom, the new heaven and the new earth, that it's all set and done, all finished, and we, we sort of just go when we observe. I don't think that's it at all. I think I think it'll be a place of incredible creative imagination. And we will spend eternity living into the ideas and imaginings of our created character and uh, characteristics as we're created in, in the image of God. Image becomes something that is incredibly important in the story of the Bible. And I, I, I want to show you that I think we, we honestly do long for the image of God to be restored because sadly something happened um, that um, became part of the sadness of the Eden stories. So the next question we wanted to ask was, what Eden sadnesses do I long to come untrue? Um, the first sadness that I long to come untrue is lost innocence. And all that there was promised when Adam and Eve sort of saw each other for the first time, and I heard some preacher being kind of silly, and he said that when Eve was brought to Adam, he said, whoa, man, 
instead of woman, I don't know. But there's that, remember, naked and unashamed, um, totally innocent. And as, as a team, uh, given the responsibility to imagine and, and to form and to lead and to, to, and, and to shape God's great creation. Um, there's a very sad question that God has to ask Adam and Eve. And when he comes to the garden for his usual evening walk with them, they're hiding. And when, when he finally sees them, he says, well, why are you hiding? And they said, because we're naked. He said, who told you you were naked? And then he knew that they had, they had broken the rules. There's only one rule, but they, they broke that rule. And because of that, the relational complications that have come about have been legion. And when I think about what, what I long for, that which I hope will be true, will come true, it's, it's the recovered innocence of the uncomplicated state of, of being free from all of, all of the clutter that came about because Adam and Eve re- rebelled against God. So God said, who told you you were naked? And th- then they started blaming. Well, she gave me the fruit and well, the serpent and so on. And instead of being able to be mutual, they became self-conscious. Um, they became self-centered. They became self-complicated. And they weren't able just to enjoy each other. They lost their innocence. They lost the wonder of simply gazing upon each other, drinking in one another's essence and being, and enjoying together the wonderful garden in which they were created. The second sadness that I long to come untrue is the uncontrolled imagination that has ensued. See, God created us as beings of imagination. And, and then, so you know that there's, there's a, a shoe that has to drop, which, which is the shoe that says, well, what, what's the thing that, that changed everything? And that is the shoe of sin. And we're going to have to find lots of times to understand what that is, what its, what its um, pathology is, and what its operation is. But imagination um, went out of control. So one of the stories later on in the Old Testament is the story of Babel. And here you have humankind, and in our created state and ability, we can do things, we can imagine things. And the people of of the day of Babel were imagination gone rogue, gone AWOL, gone out of control. And so they said, let's, let's build a tower so high, it'll reach into the actual heavens. And God, and many times how we're ex- explained what, to what God is doing, is kind of an anthropomorphism. It's like, if, how, how, do you, how do you figure out what God was actually saying or doing? But it, we're told there that God said to himself, um, let us go down there and 
confuse the languages because nothing will stop them. Isn't that a sad statement? So in, in Eden, we, we love the notion of imagination. And yet now God says that our imagination has gone out of control. Nothing they decide to do will not be attainable. So we have to frustrate that. As we think about how imagination in, in some ways has gone rogue or gone AWOL, you know, I think all we need to do is kind of look around us, look at our world. The, the question isn't so much what could we do. It ought to be what should we do. And there, there, there's very little breaking, it would appear sometimes, on what we could do. If we could do it, we'll just go ahead and do it. Without the ethical pause that says, but what should we do? Um, medicine, science, they can do in, they can do incredible things and will do even more. But imagination can take us into some very dangerous territory. And so we, we live in a world where we have imagined all kinds of things that have not been good for us and have not been good for this lovely home that we were placed in. And so one of the sadnesses that, that I long to come untrue is this, uh, uncontrolled state of imagination. The, the third sadness that I long to come untrue is the spoiled image. The fact that the image of God has been marred is often the, the term that's used theologically. So th that the, the image of God, the fact that, that this humankind is the way that anyone would hear the answer to the question, what is the God like who lives in this temple? And we have taken that lovely image and marred it. We have messed it up. So that what has happened to us is that we have been, uh, we have lost the image of God. There are two terms that are kind of twins in all of this. There's the term image and the term likeness. And some say that we still have the likeness of God, but we've lost the image of God. And, and certainly, to the degree that we were supposed to be the, the prime example of what the creator God is like, so just watch what they are like, because I made them as close as I could to the kind of being I am. Uh, we can't recognize the image of God. Uh, sometimes we, we've lost our God resemblance, um, we treat one another in ways that do not speak of others being actual image bearers. We, we are willing to, to treat people as though they're much less than godlike beings. We see no sort of resonance with, well, these are... are these were the original image bearers, remember. They still have uh, the, the resemblance. But we often treat one another as though the others around us are less than image bearers, even less than humans. Sometimes we also have found ourselves becoming more animal-like and more brutish. 
than actual God-like. And, and that's all about the image of God. And so I long for the time when we, when we recover the image of God, that once again, when we are observed by whoever the spectators of, of the universe would be, that they would say, yeah, they must be God's children. They must be the image of God because there is no mistaking that image. I talked about my grandfather and one of the things my uncle who lives over here near us, he was looking at me a, a few years ago and he said, I've been trying to figure out who you look like. And most people tell me I look like my dad. But my uncle Bob said, no, it's not him, it's not Leslie. And then he, he looked at me and he said, you look like my father. I, I loved to hear that because my grandfather was a great character and all of his boys um, kind of walk in awe of his his reputation and, and so on. So when Uncle Bob said, you look like my father, I thought that that's actually one of the nicest thing anybody could say to me. That's the point that we 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 long to recover our godlikeness so that because if if anything is ultimately good and true and perfect it must be the god it must be god and so the the more we are like that the more it ought to please us and yet more and more we become those who are living in the mar in the shadow of the lost image of God. So I long for um, the spoiled image of God to come untrue. Well, does this get happier? It absolutely does. How is Eden a forward longing? Well, there are a lot of things that have to happen in the story before the story is over. But yes, absolutely, it is longing forward. Three ways that that takes place is that there is restored innocence. Do you know we can actually be restored to that state of innocence? Um, We can format the hard drive, get rid of all the stuff. Years ago, um, there was a, a young woman and she was engaged to be married. They've been married now for many, many years, very happily and well. But she had been a a good Christian girl and she met this guy that had not been anything like a good Christian guy. And, you know, one time when we were sitting in counseling, she said, well, why would God not reserve someone for me that tried to live his life as kind of purely and and properly as I have? And she said, but it's it's okay. You know, I, I know there's forgiveness and all of that. Not long after that, she, she said something to the effect to me of, I was wrong. Um, because he has been made innocent again. He's been made pure again. Not by erasing the events of his past, but because God actually reset, you know, the ethics and morality of, of a young man. And that's what happens when we're forgiven our sins. We have a hard time really grasping forgiveness. That we think there's always a but added to it. And, and God would always say to us, there's no but. Um, you, you, we, we say, well, what do we have to do you know, to be, so that God 
would forgive me? And he says, nothing, just ask. Well, and then when God does forgive me, what does he want after nothing? Because grace does not cost anything. And you say, well, what is all of this? It's all about God. And and back to the image of God. Here's what he's like. He's He's a God of absolute grace and mercy. He forgives everything and says, I can't even remember what you're talking about. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far he has separated our, our sins from us. So, so there is the restored innocence. I, I told you it's a long story because it's the story of Jesus. And it absolutely took the death of Jesus to deal with the problem of sin that was the thing that was robbing us of innocence, the thing that had, was mucking up our lives, the thing that was making us complicated. It was the death of Jesus that was able to reset everything and say, you can now be um, pure as the driven snow, so to speak. So the forward longing is about restored innocence. The forward longing is about renewed imagination. Um, There will be in the new creation that we will be part of, I think, great room for the imagining. But even before that, because in, in almost all of these longing forward stories, there's kind of a, um, a stop station, you know, a, um, an en route station. And, and en route is the work of Christ. And it's certainly not trivial or less important. But before we move on to the complete fulfillment of the longings that we ha- have given to us, by our, our, our God. Jesus needed to do a, a whole lot of work so that then we could move ahead into the experience of the fulfilled longings. So in, in the middle of, of, of that journey, one of the things we're told is that when we have come to know um, the fact that we are new creations now, um, we'll discover that we have been created for good deeds that have prepared, been prepared for us in advance to do. How, how does all that work out? I, th- I think it, it's, a, it's a sort of a tickler about the, the future of imagination. It's not as though God says, here's exactly what I want you to do, and make sure you do those five things. It's like the the father who his child comes home from kindergarten and says, look at the picture I drew you. The father never says, well, that's not the picture I wanted. He always says that that's the most beautiful picture I've ever seen. Your imagination did this. And even in this interim now, we can kind of come to God with our imagination and say, look at this. Look at this piece of music that I wrote. Look at this art that I did. Uh, Look at this writing that I've done. Look at this little construction thing that I've been working on. Look at this. And every time it's it's as though God kind of, you see him gazing at it and smiling and saying, oh, that is so good. Because remember, he, he loves the purity of the innocence. He loves the imagination that is vast in its expression and opportunity. 
So the renewed imagination already starts to happen in life now. And in the future, you know, we'll, we'll go to Revelation often and soon. But in Revelation, you get the sense that there is, there is work to be done. And the thing that is produced by that work is just astonishing. The last thing that um, characterizes Lee Eden as a forward longing is the recovered image. This whole notion of the image being the way that the question is answered, what is the God like who is worshipped in this temple? The restoration of the image of God, the recovery of the image of God, was done pure and simply by Jesus, his son. And so the very language of the New Testament says in Colossians 1 verse 18, for example, he is the image of the invisible God. He, he, he is. He's the exact representation. And that's in John says, we've seen him. I'll tell you, he is exactly what you would expect if you saw the spitting image of the Father. We saw him. And Paul, in several places, says, here's what we know for sure, that the Son is the exact representation. He is the stamp of the Father. He is the image of the Father. And then there's a beautiful um, piece that follows that up because in Romans 8, verse 29, it says that we are being conformed into his image. So in the meantime, we now have the opportunity to be part of the restored image. What God wanted in the garden, he can have now with us, even before everything is finally done and we can move into the new heavens and the new earth. Already now, we're being changed into the image of Jesus, who is the Son of God, and the exact representation. So we don't have um, a version two of God that says, well, if we could have made you an image of the, of the true God, it would be a little better than this, but this was you know, sort of a, um, a second copy or a second version, second iteration. Now, the Son is the exact representation. There's no difference between him and the Father, and we're being changed into his image. That's what's going on in our lives. When will Eden come true and untrue? I just want to finish really by reading you about a garden and about a city. The story about the garden is in Genesis chapter 2. Then God planted a garden in Eden in the east. He put the man he had just made in it. God made all kinds of trees grow from the ground, trees beautiful to look at and good to eat. The tree of life was in the middle of the garden, also the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flows out of Eden to water the garden and from there divides into four rivers. And we're told the names of the four rivers. God took the man and set him down in the garden of Eden to work the ground and keep it in order. Revelation 22 says this. Then the angel showed me water of life river, crystal bright. It flowed from the throne of God and from the Lamb right down the middle of the street. 
The tree of life was planted on each side of the river, producing 12 kinds of fruit, a ripe fruit every month. The tree, leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Never again will anything be cursed. The throne of God and the Lamb is at the center. His servants will offer God service, worshiping. The look on his face, their foreheads shining of God, the Master. He is the light anyone needs, and they will rule with him age after age after age. The two bookends, from a garden and a river to a city and a river, and all of the things that we are drawn to, that we look back at and have some nostalgia for and discover that our longing is not to go back there but to go forward because all that was there will be even more true in the future. All that made us sad because of what we did to our creation and ourselves will be untrue as we move into the future. And so our friend... Sam Gamgee is right. Will everything sad become untrue? Yep. As well as everything happy becoming even more true.